You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us on Real Presence Live. And if you have just tuned in, welcome to Real Presence Live. We just finished a great interview with Father Dale Kinsler and his near fatal accident and his recovery and uh, the the impact that had on his spiritual life. It was just beautiful. And now we're ready to welcome our next guest, Steve Weidenkamp. And Steve is with us by phone from outside of Washington, D.C. And Steve is no stranger to uh, Real Presence Live. This is the third month in a row that we've had him on, and we're always happy to have him on because uh, he's a, a historian. He's written some books, and uh, he uh, comes from a perspective where uh, we can actually learn uh, you know, the, the church's actual involvement in things and uh, their impact on things, uh, and which I think we really need in these times of ours when the, the media does not necessarily like to put the church in a good light, and it will sometimes go way back into history to try to cast some sort of shadow over it. But anyway, today, Steve, we're going to talk about the Inquisition, but why don't you give a little introduction of yourself before we get into that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Thanks, uh, Jack and Doreen, for having me back on the show. Always glad to talk with you guys and uh, talk about, you know, church history and what we can learn from it. Uh, you know, so a little bit about myself. Uh, you know, I live here in Springfield, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C., with my beautiful wife, Casey. We have six children and one granddaughter. Um, and I'm an adjunct professor at the uh, Graduate School of Christendom College, uh, which is in Alexandria, Virginia. So we have actually uh, two different campuses. Uh, we have an undergrad campus, which is out in Front Royal, Virginia, which is about an hour and 15 minutes uh, west of where I am. And then we have the graduate school campus, which is here in Alexandria, uh, where we uh, you know, provide a master's of theological uh, studies for, for people who are interested in learning more about the faith and growing deeper in it, and for catechists and religious education teachers and and those who maybe want to go on to uh, further their uh, their theological education uh, with uh, getting a PhD or anything like that at a different university. So, um, but that's a little bit about me. I've been teaching at the grad school there for the last fifteen years, and I uh, teach several different courses, including uh, a survey course on church history over two semesters, and then also a specific course on the Crusades. Um, but the medieval period is really my focus and interest, and happy to, to talk with you today about uh, this well-known yet very misunderstood event known as the Inquisition. Yes, and we're anxious to hear, and I'd like to get your uh, take on, um, you know, how the Church is, in, you know, what the Inquisition was, how it's portrayed, and what the Church's involvement was. Because my understanding is that uh, it was not, you know, the Church does have some uh, uh, things not to be proud of uh, during that period of time, but also there was some good that came out of the Inquisition as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one thing I think that's probably the, the first starting point is to kind of, you know, define what, what we mean when we say the Inquisition, because it is one of these um, events in Church history, like the Crusades and that we've talked about before and some other events, where people have this, this understanding, or at least they think they have an understanding, of what these historical events were, because people have heard the term, right? Um, so you, you walk, you know, approach anybody on the street and, and ask them about the Inquisition, they, they will know what you're talking about in terms of they have an idea, right? They've heard the term, 
in their minds, they're thinking, you know, something either from Mel Brooks and his movie History of the World Part One, where he has that little singing dance routine about the Spanish Inquisition, or or they think about the Monty Python skit about the Spanish Inquisition, um, or they more often than not, right, have this negative image of you know a bunch of super secret uh, Catholic monks who tortured millions and killed millions of Europeans, you know, several centuries ago because they. They didn't believe what the Catholic Church believed and taught, and uh, the Church wanted to root them out and, you know, and viciously and violently suppressed all independent religious thinking uh, in Europe. That's the image that most people have, right, about, about this, this word known as the Inquisition. Um, and, and that's very far from the historical truth of what the Inquisition really was. And the first starting point, that is, to determine, or define, rather, what is this term, the Inquisition. So... The first thing to say is there was no, you know, one uh, institution, you know, uh, run by the Church that was a single, all-powerful tribunal uh, who worked in every area of Christendom in medieval Europe and early modern Europe that suppressed free thinking and, and free thought and religious thought of Europeans. Uh, that, that myth or that thing never existed. There's actually two distinct phases, if you will, in what we commonly call the Inquisition. There's, uh, the first phase is really something that should be more appropriately referred to as the phase of the time of the medieval inquisitors. And then later, in the 15th century, you, so that, that begins in the later, late 12th and the 13th century, where you have a series of papally appointed inquisitors. Um, frequently they were Dominicans, because the Dominicans were very focused on education and on uh, learning the faith from an intellectual perspective, and also were, were highly educated, and many of them were, were educated in legal principles as well. Uh, and so you have this, this phase, right, of the medieval inquisitors, and then later on in the 15th century, uh, specifically in Spain, but also in other areas of Europe, you have with the establishment of the second phase, if you will, of where it's more appropriately to refer to the institutional inquisitions, where you actually have um, you know, judicial bodies that were established in certain geographical areas of Christendom that had competency over those geographical areas, uh, and that was a kind of a static institutional office, if you will. In the first phase, the medieval inquisitors, they actually were itinerant, so meaning they went to various areas wherever there was an outbreak of heresy, or there was some suspected heretical movements uh, that were present, the inquisitors would would travel to those areas. There was no; they didn't have a certain like central office where they operated from. That didn't occur until much later in the second phase of what we we call the Inquisition, and that's when you have in that second phase you have things like the Spanish Inquisition, which most people are familiar with. You have the Roman Inquisition. You have you know the Inquisition of Paris. You have all these different geographical uh, focused offices in that second phase of the Inquisition. So I think it's important to make sure we have that distinction between the two different phases. So the question I have is, what I mean, you, you spoke of heresy. Um, so in the medieval period of the Inquisition, uh, can you just mention a few of those heresies that the Church felt needed to be investigated um, formally investigated? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So it's important, um, first of all, right, to make sure we know what heresy is and, mm-hmm. and how it was understood in the medieval world, right? So heresy, by definition, is an obstinate 
Pope's post-baptismal denial of a doctrine of faith. Right, so that, that, that first word is very key, obstinate. Right, mm-hmm. many people have a false assumption of heresy that if you, if somebody, um, you know, if blasphemes or if somebody, you know, says, if you're talking about the Immaculate Conception of Mary, let's say, and somebody says, oh, I don't really believe that. Um, somebody uttering that, that doesn't immediately make it a heretical statement or mean that they're a heretic, right? It means that, that being a heretic or formally being charged with heresy, you ha- it has to be obstinate. So meaning this person, maybe the person doesn't believe the Immaculate Conception of Mary because they don't understand what the doctrine is. It's never been really explained to them or taught to them. So if, for example, let's say somebody says that, you have an inquisitor come along who then explains the doctrine to the person, uh, and then the person still says, no, I don't believe that, um, and, and is obstinate in their refusal to believe, then that places one, or could place one, right, in the, in the um, position of, being, of, of embracing heresy and of being a heretic. The other key point there is not only is it obstinate, but the other key point is that it's post-baptismal, meaning, by definition, a heretic is someone who is already baptized, someone who is Christian. So therefore, you know, a heretic is not somebody who is a non-Christian, right? So uh, a Muslim or a Jewish person... These are not heretics, right? And so the Inquisition, medieval Inquisition in particular, and even the Spanish Inquisition for the most part, and that's a separate case, and we can talk about that in a minute, but the, the medieval inquisitors had no competency uh, and no ability to investigate or talk to Muslims or Jews. That wasn't on their radar, and that's a huge myth that many people have about the, the Inquisition in general. They think that it was, again, an area where the Church went out and found people who believed differently from the Church, and like Jews and Muslims or these heretical groups, and then attacked them, and that's not completely true, right? So, so a medieval inquisitor had no competency over a Muslim or a Jew, only a Christian. Right. So you could be a heretic and not be intentionally teaching and spreading your belief that it's contrary to doctrine? Well, you could be—you wouldn't be a heretic, you would be— you, again, if you believe something contrary to the faith, um, that could place you in heresy if it was an obstinate denial, right? So mm-hmm. once you've been, once the doctrine's been explained, if you continue to persist in your unbelief, then that could place you in in the in the status of being a heretic, right? But just just by voicing a belief. Now, if you were a member of a heretical group, so you asked me what's a good example of a heresy that erupted. So, really, the medieval inquisitors begin, and and because of a huge heresy that erupted in the south of France, towards the end of the 12th and into the beginning of the 13th century, and that was a heresy known as Albigensianism or Catharism. So, if you were a member of the Albigensians, and you believed wholeheartedly what the Albigensian heresy taught, maybe on, on the other side of the break we could, we could talk about what that heresy actually believed, mm-hmm. then if you embrace that fully, and then, you know, then you could be accused of heresy, and then if that would, you would be investigated by the medieval inquisitors, and even after being taught the truths of the faith, if you persisted in denying the truths of the faith, faith, then you would place yourself into a position of being a heretic. Oh, okay. Very good. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So being wrong is one thing, but uh, being wrong and uh, unwilling to uh, admit to that is uh, that's where you get into the heresy part. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. Well, we're coming up on a break here, so uh, uh, we will continue. We're talking with Steve Weidenkopf about the uh, the Inquisition, 
and uh, we will stay with us. We'll be right back on the other side of the break. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. SJ Machine, proudly named after and dedicated to St. Joseph, provides quality machining and induction heat treating to a variety of industries. Just as St. Joseph worked diligently to meet his family's needs, SJ Machine strives to understand and meet your production needs. Prototype to production, working together towards success. SJ Machine can be reached at 701-347-0155 and are a proud supporter of the Real Presence Radio Network. How do you know when someone may be contemplating suicide? I'm Father Chris Alar. This person will often exhibit certain warning signs, indicators such as their talk, like killing themselves or having no purpose in life, their behavior, like drug abuse, withdrawal from others, or abnormal sleep patterns, or their mood, like being depressed or having anxiety, can all be warning signs. So mental health professionals are now encouraging you to engage in dialogue with those who appear to be at risk. By talking openly about suicide, asking if they are okay, and listening to their feelings, you may save their life. To find out more, please visit suicideandhope.com. So I can personally pray for anyone you've lost and to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. I promise it will help. Do you know a priest who has made a difference in your life or at your parish? One who has helped you through a loss, discern an important decision, or celebrated the sacraments with you and your family? Real Presence Radio would like to know about these amazing priests. Visit our website at realpresenceradio.com contact to nominate your priest. And each week on Real Presence Live, we will recognize one of our priests with a dozen donuts generously donated by a local business. Help us honor our fathers by nominating your priest today. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Welcome back to uh, Real Presence Live uh, with your host, myself, Jack Canelli, and my wife, Doreen. We're talking with Steve Weidenkopf about the Inquisition. And uh, uh, during the break, Steve, you were talking about uh, the... Uh, the idea of heresy having both a secular as well as a uh, ecclesial or church aspect to it. Why don't you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. That's another one of the kind of major distinctions, I think, that people fail to realize or understand uh, in the modern age when we have this notion of what the Inquisition is, that heresy in the medieval world was viewed uh, through two different lenses, right? It was not only an ecclesial crime or a church crime if one was a heretic, but also it was a secular crime as well. And in the secular society, so in the political world, heresy was actually a capital offense. It was a capital crime, which means it was punishable by death. So that, so you have the kind of two, um, if you will, you know, legal entities, the church and then the state, which both viewed heresy, right, as a, as a problem, and a serious problem, but they both then had different punishments for heresy as well. So in the church courts, for example, 
if you were accused and convicted of being a heretic, uh, then, you know, that brought forth uh, certain ecclesial penalties or church penalties like excommunication. Now, what's important is that in, according to canon law, the church had no authority to um, execute anyone or put anyone to death or to utilize the death penalty. That was actually forbidden in canon law. So what would happen in the case of an accused heretic is that accused heretic would be brought before the inquisitors. Inquisitors, would there would be a, a trial, a, huge, a whole process. It was, you know, there were records that were taken and uh, you know, notes and things like this. And so during the course of the trial, the heretic was given multiple opportunities to recant. The inquisitor would tell them, here's what, here's why what you believe is wrong. Here's the false teaching. You know, here's the accurate teaching, the authentic teaching, the teaching of the church. And then given opportunities to repent. And if the heretic repented uh, and disavowed their, their belief in the false teaching, then the Church would, would then give an, an ecclesiastical punishment to the heretic, meaning usually it was penance, right? It was some form of penance, and the penances could be um, all kinds of different penances uh, that, w- that could be given to an accused heretic who had confessed and then who was then contrite and repentant. Now, in the situation of an obstinate individual, someone who refused to recant, refused to, uh, to, you know, to submit to the Church, if you will. Then in that case, the Inquisitors, at the end, have, had in a certain sense kind of failed in their mission to illustrate to the accused that they're placing their soul in danger by believing these false teachings. And so the Church then really, at that point, said, well, there's really nothing more that we can do. If you are obstinate and persist in your heresy, then, you know, you would be declared excommunicated. And then the heretic would be handed over to the state, and the state then, the secular authorities, would also uh, try the heretic. And if still obstinate in that case, then the state would follow through with a punishment of its own, and the punishment for heresy in most secular courts throughout Christendom in the medieval period was death. So it was the, the state, the secular authorities, who actually put people to death for heretical beliefs. It was not the Church. Uh, and that's a great misunderstanding. Many people think and believe that, you know, the, the Church uh, executed, you know, thousands, millions, of uh, tens of thousands of people for heresy during the Inquisition, and that's absolutely historically, um, abjectly false. The Church had no authority to put anyone to death and didn't actually do that. And there was no monk or no priest or no bishops that killed heretics. Instead, it was the secular authority. Now, yes, the Church did know that in the case of an obstinate heretic who refused to recant and repent and and, and you know, uh, convert back to the faith, that if they remanded that heretic to the state, that, that the heretic would be executed by the state. They knew that, yes, but that's why they tried, and for a long period of time, tried to, to uh, ensure that there was a repentance and there was a confession. So that, uh, so basically you're saying the images that we see of uh, uh, men with uh, dark uh, hoods in torture chambers were not necessarily part of the church aspect of the Inquisition. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's and that's that's uh, again probably the biggest popular myth, right, about the Inquisition that you had all these monks and priests and bishops who were, um, you know, uh, torturing and executing people in Europe for believing for not believing what the church taught, and that's that's abjectly historically false, right? We. Not only the death penalty, but even torture. Um, torture was something that was not actually, was, was a common practice, I should say, first of all, among all of the courts uh, of Christendom at the time, both uh, including secular courts. 
In terms of church courts, ecclesial courts, and then the Inquisition, the uh, ability for an inquisitor to use torture to elicit a confession wasn't actually approved until 20 years after the establishment of the medieval inquisitors. So for the first 20 years of time, uh, there wasn't uh, an ability for an inquisitor to, to utilize torture if, uh, if, they, if they deemed it necessary. And there were a lot of uh, uh, stipulations and restrictions placed on the use of torture. A medieval inquisitor could only use torture once during the course of, a, of a, an investigation with, with an accused heretic. It couldn't be multiple times. It wasn't repeated times. Uh, later on, in the Spanish Inquisition, for example, there was a time limit to the amount of torture. It could, it, the torture session itself could not last more than 15 minutes. Uh, a cleric, uh, a monk or a, or a Dominican or the you know, a bishop or a priest, no cleric could actually be the one who inflicted the physical punishment. It was a secular authority, a secular uh, individual, a political individual who performed the actual torture. Um, it was attended. The torture session was attended by a physician. Uh, it could not release or it could not result in any for, sort of uh, permanent harm to the individual. So there's no, like, you know, cutting off of limbs or killing of individuals during torture or things like that. Uh, and the torture was, was always focused on a, um, a, 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 the point of the torture really was to elicit the confession. It was not just for pure punishment. I know that sounds like a small distinction, but it's, I think, a fairly significant distinction because, as you just pointed out, Jack, right, that the images that people have about uh, the Inquisition is these, you know, monks who are just sadistically beating and uh, hurting people as much as they can just because they can, uh, and that's not at all what happened historically during this period of time, right? Torture is not an, an appropriate method. It, there were many people, as the Church, you know, teaches, uh, that it's a, it's a violation of the dignity of the human person. And, uh, you know, even even in the medieval period, there were people, many inquisitors, who didn't like uh, using torture and didn't resort to it at all, didn't think it was effective, even though it was very prevalent in, in secular courts um, and, and in the medieval world. And, and we talked about that during the break, that we do have examples of people who were accused of secular crimes being put into secular jails and, and undergoing torture, who would blaspheme or, or, or utter some kind of heretical statement in order to be remanded from the secular jail and given over to the Church and be placed in an ecclesial jail, because at this time the Church actually did have their own jail, um, put into an ecclesial jail so that they could then be investigated by the inquisitors for heresy because they were treated much more humanely and much more fairly in an ecclesial court and a Church court than in the secular court. Steve, were the trials always individuals, or did groups of people get tried for heresy? No, each individual, usually it was each individual person, right? Oh. So there could, what would happen is inquisitors, in the medieval inquisitors, right, they would go to an area, uh, they would announce their presence, there'd be a period of time of um, self-incrimination, basically, it was called a period of grace, anywhere from 30 to 40 days, where if you, you know, had... Uh, remember, maybe say, let's say you'd been to a couple of meetings of, you know, uh, Albigensians if you lived in the south of France. Um, you could go before the inquisitors and say, you know, I attended some meetings. I don't really believe what, what they taught, but, you know, they, they um, were very convincing, and so I believe some things, but I don't. And 
if you did that, if you basically self-incriminated, then you would receive a very, you know, some sort of uh, penitential sentence mm. uh, and then be on your way. Um, after that period of self-incrimination, that period of grace, if you will, then then there was allowed the accusatorial uh, uh, practice, right, where people could come in and accuse somebody and say, oh, you know, I saw Jack going into this, this well-known Albigensian house and, you know, he was trying to convert me to the Albigensian faith. So you would accuse somebody of being a heretic, and then, then the inquisitors would investigate that. They would call witnesses. They would call the person accused. Uh, they would ask that person who was accused of heresy, first of all, to give them a list of all of enemies or anybody that they could think of that might have uh, an animus against them. Uh, and then if that person had, had come and given testimony against the accused, uh, then his testimony was thrown out, right, because it was considered to be um, you know, attainted, right? Not not uh, fair and objective. Then uh, the process, you know, the trial would begin. You'd be given an opportunity to uh, defend yourself later on, um, you know, in the inquisitorial process. Uh, after, uh, you know, later as we get into the more institutional tribunals, you were given an advocate, someone, you know, a lawyer, we would say, who would come and actually advocate on your behalf to the inquisitors. Um, and so there was a lot of legal procedures and practices and restrictions in place to ensure a fair trial. In some situations, especially as you get into the 16th century and other areas of Christendom, you, you see examples of people who were tried as groups for heresy, but it began as, as an individual process. And that's how it mostly was conducted. Thank you. It, it, it's interesting to hear this in the context of the Inquisition, which, you know, we kind of have this very grim uh, kind of understanding of where you know you're talking about the, the 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 court procedures and you can see how some of that stuff still even endures today what i thought was interesting though where you're talking about the uh, reforms re- <laughs> pertaining to torture i'm thinking boy we've come a long way since then you know you're you're, you're talking about you know torture can only last for was it 15 or 50 minutes did you say yeah it's 15 15 15 you know and i'm thinking Wow, there's a reform for you. <laughs> I have a question. Where does excommunication fit into this? Yeah, so remember, excommunication is an ecclesial penalty and a uh-huh. church penalty, and it can be given for a multitude of different uh, uh, you know, issues or crimes uh, in the church. And so at the end you know, of a process, uh, if someone who was being investigated by the inquisitors went through a trial, if at the end they refused to recant their heresy, if they were obstinate in their false beliefs, then at that point, the, the Church would declare them excommunicated and then remanded to the state. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so that's where that comes in. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, we've got just a few seconds before the break, but we certainly want to thank you for spending this time with us and, uh, you know, giving us uh, this information about the Inquisition. I hope, uh, I, I hope we've uh, contributed to a lot of our listeners' understanding what really happened during the Inquisition. And uh, I hope we can have you again on another time because I just so much enjoy our visits and learning from you. So thank you very much. And uh, if you've got uh, any books, if you got in the next 10 seconds, you could recommend for our listeners, go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, best place to find my books is at my website, stevewidenkoff.com, all one word. You can go on the Catholic answers as well. Uh, I write a lot of uh, things for them and I published a few books from them as well. So that's the best place to get them. Thanks again for having me on the show, guys. Okay, thank great. You. Thank you, Steve. And so, Stay with us. Uh, When we get back, we're going to be talking about... 
St. Monica's Montessori School. St. Monica's Montessori School. So stay with us, and we'll see you on the other side of the break. Live, engaging, and local, this is Real Presence Live, where we bring you positive and uplifting stories and share the great things happening in our local area on the Real Presence Radio Network. 